right, so I'm here with Mitch and Jed, and we're going to talk about uh, the parable of the wedding feast, right? Is that Matthew, what did you say? Chapter 22. Yeah, I guess we'll start there, digging in there, see where the conversation goes. And Craig said he'd join, so he'll probably pop in at some point. But... Okay. All right. Well, would you guys like me to start for by just kind of reading through the parable? Sure. Yeah. Uh, and um, this is... Uh, and the reason why I'm kind of stoked to talk about this is I actually think that this is a parable that is quintessentially for our time. Right here, right now, kind of thing. You mean in a way that it isn't? What do you mean? Well, we can get into that. <laughs> I don't want to give away all the goodies right now, Mitch. Come on, man. <laughs> all right oh wait uh, hold on one second let's let craig get in here so we can let's go over that really okay. quick hey craig what's Hi. up man this is jed this is hey, craig. jed nice to meet you so nice we're you. we're actually um jed was just saying we we're gonna look at uh, the parable of the wedding feast i guess we're just gonna start with that see where it takes us and he was saying that um he believes it's what quintessential was that the word you used for yeah, all times for, for our for our speaking, I think I mean all parables speak to now, regardless of which now you happen to be in. But I think that there's some special significance to this one. Um, so I'm going to read out of uh, David Bentley Hart's translation, just because he tends to be a, like a very literalistic reading of the text. So it, it, sometimes he brings out things that may not may may surface in a normal translation, may not right. Um, so anyway, starting in chapter 22 of Matthew, verse 1, and in reply, Jesus spoke to them in parables again, saying, the kingdom of the heavens is to be likened to a man, a king who arranged wedding celebrations for his son, and he sent out his slaves to summon those who had been invited to the wedding celebrations, and they did not wish to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, say to those who have been invited, look, I've prepared my luncheon, my bowls, my fatted beasts have been sacrificed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding celebrations. But they went away in indifference, one to his own field, another to his business. But the rest overpowered the slaves, treated them brutally, and killed them. The king was enraged, and sending his armies, he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he says to his slave, the wedding is indeed ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to where the roads led out and summon as many as you find to the wedding celebrations. And those slaves going out into the streets gathered together all whom they found, both the bad and the good. And the wedding hall was filled with those reclining at the table. But the king coming in to see those who were reclined at the table spied there a man not clothed in a wedding garment. And he says to him, friend, how did you enter here, not wearing a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind his feet and throw him into the darkness outside. There will be weeping and grinding of teeth there, for many are called, but few are chosen. Um, I'm going to see if I want to go into the rest. No, I'm just going to leave it there. So just going down through verse 14. So ending it, for many are called, but few are chosen. So... Anyway, I, I find this to be such a fascinating, a fascinating text that um, if we were to locate it, its significance within Jesus's own time, right? Like the, the word for the, the word of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom goes out that the banquet is about to be had, right? And the sons of the kingdom have no interest in it. They've got other business. So they're they're busy or indifferent or sometimes outright hostile. And so those to whom the kingdom belongs uh, by, you know, by some sort of right are excluded. Right. And then, um, and then a new series of invitation goes out just to everybody, good and bad. doesn't matter who you are, basically just come dress for the party. Right. Um, and so long as you dress for the party you're in is kind of the, the, what I'm, the, the broad strokes of how I'm reading this, but obviously like you can still try to sneak into the party, but uh, you know, uh, you came in your, you came in your board shorts when you needed to be dressed for a wedding. Right. And you find yourself on, on the way out as well. Right. So there's just a really interesting parable um, that I think speaks to 
um, some of like the dispositions that I see broadly speaking, um, even in our own time where uh, we can get very caught up in the business of what's happening in Christianity, what's happening in the church, where the theological currents are going and which ones are alarming and which ones aren't. But there's a, there's, there's something more fundamental that we're missing. And that's this message of this kingdom and this wedding feast that awaits us at the end of the age. And I would say like, I mean, personally, I think that we're very close to that, that inflection point. Right. And here, you know, every day we draw closer to that. It seems like we find ourselves um, going after a lot of irrelevancies that don't actually drive forward that open invitation to that wedding feast that is about to come and maybe don't even have much interest in it at all. Right. Um, so I was listening to a book, really fascinating book on the rise of Islam. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with um, Tom Holland's historical books. Like he wrote the book dominion, which was a history of Christianity. Um, prior to that, he wrote one on the Caesars, um, some on, um, the rise of Christendom, but he wrote this book on the rise of Islam. And what was really interesting is prior to kind of the rise of, you know, uh, uh, all these Muslim armies taking over parts of the Persian and Roman empires was like, you know, a series of just intense wars between Rome and Persia. And at this time, Rome is a Christian nation. And you could see this, um, these power dynamics within the Roman society of that time, um, how, you know, whether they were engaging in forced baptisms or basically laying cities in, in Mesopotamia into utter waste. I mean, just the, the unbelievable amount of blood that was shed under this Christian society that was operating off of Christian principles, but was drenching continents in blood, um, seemed to be very much consumed with the power dynamics of its own day and not so much consumed with the things that actually constitute the, the kingdom of God itself. And uh, so it was just an interesting parallel where I look at our time and it's like, well, you know, fortunately we don't have too many Christian armies marauding, you know, uh, you know, marauding foreign lands, but um, it doesn't mean that we're, we're not equally oblivious to kind of what's going on around us. So anyway, that's kind of my initial take and thoughts there i don't know if you guys had any any thoughts in this passage probably tying the older shall serve the younger thing we're kind of in our little signal group we've been on this thing of the older shall serve the younger and it seems like you could even apply that in this where he goes to the the ones in the kingdom like the firstborn and it's like saying come you're invited here's your blessing and then they miss it or miss out and then he goes to the the younger or the one the second the first misses and it comes because when you were reading through it for some reason i thought well i wonder if this could apply to the prodigal son in a way where the first son's kind of just caught up in his father's business and uh because some of them say that we're too busy we're not going to come to the feast um and then the, in the prodigal son story he goes back to his father and gets the feast and his, the older son is like i never had a feast like why and he was like well you could have had one at any time so you can maybe apply it there, but I feel like that's kind of a little bit of a stretch. Um, I don't know. What also came to my mind was maybe communion or the Eucharist and uh, the, the one in John where he is at actually at the wedding feast. Um, so I don't know. What are you guys' thoughts? Anyone else? It reminded me. It almost seemed very parallel with uh, Malachi 1. Um uh, starting in 10, it says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door, said that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says Lord Almighty, and I will accept no more offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. Uh, so there's this broadening of, of who can worship, uh, kind of. My name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations. So there's this sort of broadening of it uh but uh you still have the the thing where oh you still have to have pure offerings you know you don't get to show up in any clothes you want so to speak it, it's interesting kind of parallel if you ask me mm -hmm. hmm. got any thoughts craig 
I wonder, Jed, it, it seems like this catches your attention, this story particularly. I wonder where you see yourself in the story. Um, <laughs> I, that varies. <laughs> um, I, I think, I mean, realistically, I think that like anytime Jesus presents a story to us, there's a sense where any one of those characters can apply to us at any given time. You know, um, I, I think uh, my when when confronted with the message of the kingdom, right? I, I you know, much to my own shame, I would say I, I could find myself among those who, you know, the worries of life can make me indifferent, right? I got more going on than that, so I can't pay attention to it. So I do find myself at times there. Um, but also I think among those who are, uh, I, I feel an affinity with those who are going out and sending out the invitation, right? Like, no, this thing's, this party is going to happen. It's coming soon and you don't want to miss it. It's like an open invitation to the Met Gala. Just come, you know, it, it, if you got to steal a tuxedo to get in, then for God's sake, you're invited you know, kind of thing, just come dressed for the party, you know? Um, so I, I do feel some, some of the, uh, some of the affinity there, but I think also, I mean, I, you know, as a guy who, you know, I am a Christian definitely, but, um, you know, I've, I've struggled in my life and I, I deal with the realities of mental illness. And so, you know, I find myself often, you know, more, um, affinity with the company of the damned, right? The ones who are cast out and are considered the bad, right? And realizing that, like, um, I, I find a tremendous amount of hope in this parable because it's like, oh, people like me can be included in the kingdom as well and have a seat at the table. Like, obviously, you want to come dressed for the party, but, you know, your, your goodness or your badness does not seem to be um, a prerequisite for your seat at the table. Um, there's a really wonderful book. I'll go ahead and pull that from my shelf in just a minute. Um, the deals in the parables that I've been, it was given to me years ago. And it's maybe I'll look back and, you know, you have kind of maybe a handful of books that change your life. This will definitely be one of them, but it, it just talks about a lot of these radical inversions that the kingdom brings. And um, so I, I realize it's kind of cheating maybe a little bit there, Craig, to, to say that I see myself in, in a lot of these different characters. Um, but I, I do, um, but I think that the, the presentation or, or the urgency of, of this, as I've been reading through this parable the last few months, it's like, wow, we're like really kind of in that, in that threshold where there seems to be, um, a lot of people, the people of God worrying about a lot of things that have nothing to do with the ultimate concerns of the kingdom. And, uh, and a whole lot of people on the outside just waiting for an invitation to come in. And are we ready for that kind of disruptive behavior? Because if we look back historically, what, what this looked like historically was a major upheaval. Like, you know, between the time of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and the generation that followed, the whole world got flipped upside down. And... Um, so anyway, so those are some thoughts. I'm going to go grab that book real quick, um, and then I'll be right I'll be right back. But I can I'll still be able to hear you guys. I'll have your your on my speaker. So. Does anything stand out to you guys? Got any thoughts? You're you're on mute, Mitch. Sorry. I'm just saying, I really liked you, don't you guys? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing you can't hear us when you say that. <laughs> it's extremely interesting i do think uh i think i agree if you kind of see yourself in in certain ways uh in every character or you at least at different moments in your life you find yourself in different in every person's shoes in that story and uh it's yeah it seems to be happening all the time <laughs> for that reason yeah mm. Jed, give us a taste of that cover. What's the oh, book? Yes. Like? So the book here is um, by Robert Capon. He was a, an Anglican or Episcopal priest. 
he died a few years back, but he had written a lot in the from the 70s through the 90s, basically. This is called Kingdom Grace Judgment. And it is um this was given to me, I want to say about almost 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um and he has this um wonderful like way of diving into the parables in a very playful way of interpreting them. Like it's not just like heavy biblical exegesis, but more, and there, he certainly has that. Like he's a very, very skilled exegete, but um, his insights come from probably a very good broad view of like the universality or the Catholicity of the kingdom. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, he, he picks up on a lot of like the agrarian metaphors of the kingdom of a seed that grows or of, um, you know, or of, leaven that you know causes a a loaf of bread to rise and all these kinds of things to say that like um the kingdom is kind of like this this enzyme or this catalyst that will just simply grow on its own and simply has done that throughout history um and but oftentimes we find ourselves um on the outside looking in when that's actually the the one thing that is totally unnecessary because the invitation into the kingdom is as universal as the kingdom is. There's not, there's nowhere where the kingdom is not. And, um, and I, it was one of those watershed writings. I think it actually, um, you know, while Capon himself was not a universalist, the way he interprets the parables skews so heavily in that direction. That was really my first moment of grappling with the implications of, of that kind of interpretation. Um, I would say he probably is very much like C.S. Lewis was in the, in the great divorce. The idea of like, the only reason why you wouldn't show up at the party is because you decided not to go kind of thing. Um, but that the invitation is there and that, that, that we, um, we enter into that through our own deaths because Christ has taken up our death and his death. Right. And so that it's, it's open to all. Um, so he has some really interesting things to say about it, but what, what it's impressed on me over, you know, over the years is like this, almost like a lingering agitation inside myself of like, okay, I've grown up in the church and I'm very well read in theology and, and, um, but I often find that like, there's a deeper dissatisfaction, you know, the older I get, I'm in my mid forties now of um seeing a lot of different things that the church is busy with um while missing the kingdom entirely right and who's in and who's out well it doesn't seem like jesus is drawing much of a distinction as far as the kind of classification of a person who's in or out as much as it would like if we look at the parable in matthew 25 of the sheep and the goats who's in and who's out really has to do with how well you've treated him through the way you've treated other people. Right. So there's, there's some, there are demarcations in a firm line of judgment, but it's usually not where we draw them as Christians, right? We have, uh, you know, purity tests of doctrine and, you know, purity tests of practice. And those will vary depending on which tradition you're in and in those kinds of things. Um, but not a, a, a lot of emphasis on the kind of people we are, and the kind of kingdom that we belong to and how that shapes and informs the way we comport ourselves in the world. And, and I think, you know, for me, like the, the time that we live in is I, I do believe we're in an apocalyptic cycle, you know, whether that's, you know, an apocalypse or the apocalypse is an open question, but I lean more towards this is it. This is we're we're, we're in the, uh, we're in the the last stages of an apocalyptic cycle that will give way to a new age. And it sounds uh, like you you don't mean that in the same way that you mean that this parable is for people living now, no matter when now is. It's a different kind of yeah. I, I think I think there's kind of the both and to that, right? Because the like the the party is kind of always there and always present right? The kingdom is always here and always present. So there's not like, if I'm interpreting this parable in 700 AD, it should still have the same arresting immediacy as if I'm interpreting it here in, you know, the 21st century, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's always there. Um, but also we have a, a different, um, 
a different position in history, right? We're, you know, in 8700, there were certainly major geopolitical events happening and upheavals, and there's a lot going on there. However, you know, we fast forward it here to the 21st century, and a lot of like what is happening in our world is an existential threat to our continued existence, continued existence on it, right? In a way that just has not been the case historically for humans, right? And there's you know, there's so many things happening all at once that it is it's almost impossible to keep up with. Um, and so, to me, those are markers of of a transitional transitional point, like a fulcrum point in history where things are going to go one way or the other. And I just, I just so happen to believe that what stands in front of us is that age of the kingdom that, that Christ's teachings are pointing us toward, mm. that it's not just a, an ethereal presence, but it's a real historical event. Um, and I would get into maybe some, some other writers to justify some of the the concepts, but I do think it's something that we have an active role. Uh, while we are not the ones who create the kingdom or create its conditions, we are a part of bringing it about and seeing it realized and actualized in history as Christians. That's actually what we're supposed to do. Um, there's a great um, Russian philosopher, Nikolai Berdyaev, who talks about that, is that the kingdom is supposed to be, is, um, is the creative vocation of the church. Um, and so, um, and it cannot be attained until he, he comes out of like Russian Orthodoxy, right? Um, and so one of his, his major criticisms was clericalism, right? The kingdom isn't going to come about just through clergy getting the job done, right? But the realization of the people of God as the creative impetus through which the conditions of the kingdom can be attained on earth. It's not quite post-millennial because he's like um, Sergei Bulgakov, who uh, Jason has been in on some discussions with um, Nate Heil and myself. He was a he was what would be called maybe pre-millennial in a very different way than maybe American and British pre-millennials. But he was he saw the millennium as something that the church had an active role in bringing about, which made him very unique. Um, there was kind of this unique moment in Russian theology that saw some space for that um, and what's really cool is a lot of those writings are coming back to the surface here 100 years after they're written and i think are um, very relevant like very relevant in in how we look at millennium so i think a post-millennial would be more apt to, to to think in that mindset or they tend to be don't they they tend to but they they tend to to view that through kind of a theocratic lens um especially like protestant post-millennial um, in post-millennial thinkers, that's definitely, that's decidedly not what, like the kind of, like what these Russian pre-millennials would look, would see the kingdom, like they would, they would look at it synergistically. It is God's work, but it is a work that we, as the people of God, participate in. A question. Um, so, and, and I think we might be on the same page, but I was just wondering if there's a way to explain this properly. So if, we're kind of looking at this parable and we're saying that um, we could approach it looking at it saying so the Christians have been invited, but um, a lot of times we're actually missing it by looking at other things. And so you go out and you invite other people. You say everyone's invited. Um, if we're missing it, well, what is how are we missing it? Like, what are we being invited to? What is the what is the feast that we're calling people towards? Um, cause it, cause you would most, I mean, I think I know what I would say to answer that. It'd be interesting to hear your, your answer though. But I feel like most of the time we're saying, um, become a Christian or come to church or this or that. But then if, if the people who are engaging in those things are missing it to some degree, then what is the, the actual feast? Mm -hmm. The invitation That's the question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can take a crack at it. I don't want to. I don't want to dominate here, though. But, um, um, I, so I think if we look at the substructure of Jesus's own teaching ministry, like, and what he teaches us about the kingdom, is he's in a sense he's already expounding what I would call the eschatological and apocalyptic horizons of 
the Hebrew prophets, right? So, you know, the, the high statements of what, you know, what a divine society would look like as we get them in, especially like Jesus quotes more from Isaiah than any other prophet, but we get it in Jeremiah, we get his, we get a lot of Malachi, right, um, is, is looms large in his thinking, but there was this sense of the age to come that was going to be this messianic age that was going to be realized under the rule of a messianic king and that it was going to be universal. Um, so like, for example, like one of the areas I think like a missing piece is we, we tend to, we tend to as Christians deal well with like maybe the religious dimension of the kingdom, but it's Catholic. It touches everything. It, it's it's not just religion it's it's a way of thinking and it, i would say it, it it demands a fundamental shift in consciousness right so one of the ways i would i would describe that shift of consciousness would be like in isaiah chapter 2 right where isaiah is calling for an age that will come where the swords will be beat into plowshares and the spears in, into pruning hooks well, we're looking at two things are happening there. You're looking at a fundamental shift in consciousness, but you're also looking at a technological revolution, right? So one precedes the other. These implements that were used for violence and destruction in kind of a zero sum framework of, of consciousness that I must destroy my enemy, right? is being inverted where Jesus calls us to love our enemy and, and, and he's reframing the way humans are supposed to approach reality and looking at technology as a, um, as a life bringing life enhancing force versus a destructive one. Right. So the, the, the moving of the spear into the pruning hook and the sword into the plowshare is talking about technology. Like it, it doesn't look like it because we're used to thinking of it in religious language, but that's fundamentally what that's talking about. Um, you get it, you get a shift in the way even biological life would work, right? When you have the wolf laying down with the child, uh, or the child the wolf laying down with the lamb and the child playing with the cobra, there's these shifts in even you know typical predator prey type relationships. So there's a there's a fundamental shift in reality that 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 age to come is signifying in the Hebrew prophets where uh, and I think it's very much reinforced, especially in Jesus's emphasis on the like the Jubilee texts. Right. So in Luke four, his first sermon, his first public sermon in the Gospel of Luke is in Nazareth. And he reads from Isaiah 61, which is a Jubilee text. Essentially, he's announcing a, a debt forgiveness event among other things and what is the response of this of the synagogue in nazareth they try to kill him right because because if you if you attack the debt structures and the economic structures of of the roman society which would be undermining the sacrosanct nature of debt you would have undone all of rome's power in a single day because the way they the way they leverage power over uh, what you could call their colonial holdings was through debt extraction and extracting wealth through economic means, which was creating the kind of the social crisis that Jesus's ministry is occurring within. Right. So he, I think he's has a, um, a very high view in, in his parables and in his teachings of a, of a mode of earthly existence that is qualitatively different than anything we've experienced before. I would be be willing to say that much. Like it touches technology, it touches the way um, we even look at you know um, ecosystem life cycles, right? Because if if the wolf is no longer preying upon the lamb, well, what what kind of ecosystem is that? How does that work, right? There's all kinds of um, interesting implications there, and I, I think as Christians, I think that we really have not taken up our responsibility in those areas in a way that helps us, you know, if even in a provisional and imperfect way, help move the ball forward in those directions. So. How does this uh, version of the feast 
uh, square with something like the resurrection of the dead. Um, I mean, I could just I could tell you how I view it. I don't know if it's I can't vouch for the fact that it's right. <laughs> um, I think it's I think it's kind of like a lot of things that we get when we get in these like um, we get this relationship between the apocalyptic and the um, eschatological, and I'll define those terms quickly so that because um, it's something that Sergei Bulgakov will use quite a bit, and I I definitely draw a lot off of his thinking. The apocalyptic horizon is basically the historical transition from the present age to the age to come um, that would be approximated in like um, the millennial reign of Christ that's described in, in uh, you know, what is it, Revelation 20. But they don't, he doesn't put a, a he doesn't literalize that. He just says, yeah, it's referring to some kind of age after this age that may be much longer than a thousand years. A thousand years is, is a symbolic time frame, but referring to a real historical reality or a real future reality. Um, so you have the apocalyptic horizon where the whole of this historical epoch is judged, right? And there is an initial resurrection, right? Um, and then you have the eschatological horizon at the far end of history, which would maybe a good controlling metaphor would be the descent of the new Jerusalem and meeting the, the meeting of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and, and I would say like in that sense, both the resurrection imagery is probably obtains in probably a model of dual fulfillment. That would be my, my estimation of how to read that text with the caveat that I don't know that I'm right there. Uh, that's just my, that's where my my intuitions lead me to believe that we're looking at something that has that encompasses both that historical apocalyptic and then that far end conclusion of all history eschatological horizon. I think you, we have both at play. The feast refers to two things. I think that, that the resurrection imagery of the feast can refer to two things, um, but just like you know, just like the. Um, you know, a lot of people were anticipating a single coming of the Messiah, right? That ultimately gets prolect gets split between two two advents, essentially. Um, you know, the, I think that there's 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 room to view this as kind of a having a historical and an end of history type um, manifestations. You know, what this is reminding me of the question of the raising of the dead is in the story of the prodigal son where the father says my son was dead and now he's alive and of course the son wasn't dead but by dead what he's saying is he forgot his office mm -hmm. he, he forgot you who he was meant to be and and that's what's celebrated and so that i bring that up because that seems like a, a plausible way to interpret the, the raising of the dead uh, while also believing that there's this kind of rising up and acting with the correct decorum that the rest of the parables we discussed are mm. suggesting. Mm. That's kind of where my mind was going to. I like that you brought that up. Like a, a raising of the dead and as in a type of um, reconciliation or something. Um, uh, 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 through that, um, that new way of uh, being that Jed is talking about, through this new way of being in the world, through the what, looking at how Christ lived in the self-sacrificial life, it's um, yeah, and the in the reconciliation with the the son to the father in that story is incredibly fascinating. Because even mm -hmm. uh, there's another parable. That's what I was. Sorry, I might have I might have missed a few things here because my mind was jumping around. But I was trying to find. It's not in that one, but there's another part where um jesus says something like uh they're gonna sit down at the table and eat with abraham isaac and jacob but the sons of the kingdom will be thrust out so it's something similar to that and it's like they're even you know you would say i think it's the same parable it's the same okay. parable but it's delivered in luke 15 if i'm thinking jesus delivers this parable it's delivered in it's a little bit more violent and stark in matthew 22 than it is in luke 15 yeah 
but it's okay. I think that it's kind of using the same imagery. Maybe Jesus gives the parable a couple of times, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, there's a way I think. Yeah. So I think and then you know right after this, where we're looking at Matthew is it talks about uh, a woman losing her husband in these marriages and they're asking about the resurrection and he brings up Abraham Isaac and says, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. And so it's like, um, I think there is idea with uh, reconciliation and even like a communion with your ancestors where you're um, uh, somehow cut off, but now you're reconnected and they've been resurrected in that way, which is a very kind of, almost unsatisfying way of looking at it when you're thinking about like just uh i don't know it the way i'm getting at it, it's not it's not giving it justice like i think it's more than that but i do think it's happening this aspect of resurrection is happening all the time as in a restoration of relationships um like craig's talking about my son was dead and now he's alive again uh, this relationship was dead and now it's alive again and so i think it it works on that small personal fractal way but it's it increases and continues to increase um, into something much more glorious. But mm. I'm still uh, water testing Jed's vision of the of the feast here. Um, in, in that version, uh, in your in this idea that you presented, uh, who are who are we tying up hand and foot and throwing them out? Who are like the unchosen in this vision? So could you could you repeat that? Just I, I didn't quite catch a little bit of that. And I want to make sure I'm understanding the, the question. The garment. I was thinking in your vision of of what the feast is, um, who are the people that were, you know, tying up and tossing out? Okay. Um, yeah, I think that that's that's the actually I think it's kind of where Capon gets a little playful in his chapter is um, he uses the he uses that image of just like, Hey, there's a wedding party coming. And like, so he's got, you know, people sending out the invitations and like you're invited, doesn't matter who you are. So they're inviting, you know, the prostitutes and the homeless and everybody's coming in. And it's just, you know, with the, with the caveat of like, you're going to a wedding. So make sure you're dressed for the wedding. Right. And I don't remember exactly the, um, exactly the, the image he used but it'd be like you know somebody you, you know be like uh if you're on the the city streets of like uh, i don't know if you guys have been to times square before um, but when i was there they had the guy in playing guitar in his underwear the cowboy underwear guy you know the cowboy hat and the underwear it'd be like that guy showing up at the wedding being like yeah i'm here for the wedding this is great and it's like that's cool man but like this is a wedding like we don't want you in your underwear like you, you should have like if you if you didn't have a suit, you should have stole one. Just you come dressed for the wedding. That was the only prerequisite for coming in. In the Jesus version, these are like the severest bouncers I've ever seen. I mean, they they tie them up hand and foot and throw them into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, I just got the wrong clothes here. What's going yeah. on? Yeah, it's like, hey man, I came with the wrong outfit. But I think like it's there is like a certain solemnity. This is like I think you know you can make the case based on Jesus's teachings, this, this is the meeting, this is the meeting of heaven and earth and the nuptial bliss between Christ and his bride. Like if you're getting married, you don't want your future brother-in-law showing up, you know, showing up to your wedding in a speedo, right? Would not be appropriate for, for the solemnity of the event, right? Um, so I, I think it's just those who kind of see the invitation uh, and, uh, do not place like a proper value on the fact of like, wow, like I'm a homeless dude and I just got, you know, invited to the Met Gala, right? I should probably see if I can work on getting, you know, getting a haircut and shaving my face and, and getting cleaned up so I can at least not look, you know, look totally inappropriate for the event, right? And so I think there's like a, there, like the, the, the wedding, the whether somebody has wedding garments or not is not so much indicative of their outward appearance, but the disposition with which you're coming to this event. Like, are you taking it seriously or not? Right. And, and so I think the, uh, because everybody's invited bad and good, like that's, we don't care who you are. We don't care what you've done. You, the doors are wide open for all of you. 
Um, so there's there's no limit on who who gets invited, but it's like, yeah, but you're still coming to a wedding. You're not going to show up to a wedding in the same outfit that you're going to go to Burning Man in, right? So, you know, I, I think that there, I think that that's speaking to the just the internal disposition and the seriousness with which somebody is approaching what is the meeting of heaven and earth. It almost makes sense. I mean, the, the way this makes sense to me is I, I can't make it work in like a sort of utopia building way. I can make it work in like in, in parallel with the other judgment kind of stories we're getting in scripture. Uh, because many are invited and few are chosen. So what do you do when you get invited? You're like, oh, you have, you're wearing wedding clothes. You're not. How'd you get in here with that wedding clothes? The man was speechless and got tossed out. It's, uh, I just can't, I can't track it. I can't map it on in my head to, to like a bringing the kingdom to earth kind of sensibility. Well, my, well, what my mind thinks of is I think there is an aspect of actually reverencing what, what invitation has been given to you. Um, like Jed's talking about, you don't just come uh, with without any respect or reverence um, but then it also for some reason made me think of um, what's that one the Pharisee who's like praying like thank God I'm not like the sinner uh, who's who's uh, you have this the sinner who's like praying to God and he's like just wants forgiveness and he's like God uh, like I'm thankful that you look upon me do you guys know the parable I'm talking about and then the yeah. other Pharisees like thank, thank God I'm not like this the <laughs> sinner and I look at all my good deeds type thing so I think there's a way you could. I got to reload myself here, so I'm gonna. Okay. I got you. Guys. I got you. I'm. I'm listening in, and I can even respond. I just. I don't want to have hear have you guys hear me clanking around here. Do you think? All right. But yeah, so I don't know. That's kind of where my mind was going to. Is like you could enter, but you could be like, yeah, I'll show up, and then you come in with all these these airs and trying to wave your status around and be like, look at all these these deeds I've done, and then uh, you get thrust out for that reason. Yeah. For some reason, what came to my mind, I don't know, because the guy who gets thrust out is like, it seems like I can identify with that guy too. Where you're just like, man, that could that could be me, or that is me, you know. But this part in Acts reminded me where this verse it says, "You have neither part nor portion in the matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God." Um, and that's when he's talking about where like the guy's playing, trying to pay Peter for the Holy Spirit, like give him money for to have the gift of the Holy Spirit. But just that line came to my mind. You don't have a part or portion in the matter for your heart is not right. Like the garments are uh, uh, something to do with your heart. You definitely get the idea of this guy. Well, either two things it makes me think of. He probably doesn't have, he probably doesn't realize that he's not dressed, you know, that he's speechless. He's like, wait, I mean, like, but the goats are like, when did we see you? And not or with the Pharisee prayer, like, thank God I'm not like him. You probably think totally like, in the right club. Yeah. Uh, but that's always. And then the speechless bit reminds me because of what was uh, you and um, Jesse were talking about in Job, like at the part where I guess it was you and him about where his, he said he put his hand over his mouth. Oh, yeah. And it yeah. reminds me of Romans where it says every mouth will be stopped. It's like, Nobody's going to be able to say anything for themselves. Uh, yeah, like not speaking for yourself. You know, yeah. in our, in, go ahead, Jason. No, no, go. Okay. I lost my thought anyway. I can't remember. It's what occurred to me when you said that you didn't see the story corresponding to the utopic vision. What, what came to my mind about this story is that there's a moment in the story where the wedding isn't going to happen where there are no guests and the get the wedding only happens because people show up and they bring to bear the correct cells for the occasion. That's yeah. good. Yeah. That is good. Another thing that strikes me is kind of weird. is like, there's a weird, there's a weird way where like the right garment is nakedness. <laughs> that's that, you know, like if it's, if you're showing up like the, like the sinner who's humble like the humble sinner you're almost humility is a way of like exposing yourself in a sense because that sinner who's like beats his chest and is crying before god he's like just here i am totally exposed totally open 
um, please receive me. And it's like, there's this weird, yeah, just, uh, I don't know where the, whatever clothing you're wearing is almost like, mm -hmm. uh, it's all from God. Cause you're just totally exposed at that moment. And it's like, I don't know. This kind of reminds me of, I think the, of what we were talking about, Craig, the other day when we were, um, when you brought up garments and we didn't really, I didn't know where to go with it. And just the different ideas of. Do you remember? Do you, wait, you said you don't remember or you do? <laughs> what do you remember? Oh, just, we were, we were exploring the idea of, um, yeah, the, the veiling and the unveiling. I think we were, it was when we were hitting all these different topics. We we're like, we gotta, we gotta talk about this later, this later. But um, that idea and um, being like a bride being clothed and wearing those type of garments. And then um, in the same way, like you could have someone is trying to cover their identity because they're ashamed or like a harlot is like, tries to cover her head so she, people won't know who she is. And the same thing kind of happens in reverse with a bride. She's covering her identity for, for like a, um, to receive the identity of the husband in a way yeah. or something like that yeah well, i think your instinct is totally right in that the garment one is maybe one of the strongest thematic elements of the entire text the the whole book so i think you're totally right to bring that up and it seems like it means everything in this context say more about how i'm right no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't ever stop saying that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the the people, Craig, you're saying that the people were people that were ready to kind of step up to the plate were the ones who ultimately could make the wedding happen, the wedding feast happen, namely the utopic vision. Yes. And then not only those that. But it's it's what's the what do you think is the distinction between the invitees and those who are so it's like you guys don't deserve um, to be invited and that's immediately evident so I'm going to go invite all these other people and out of these people I suppose it's not going to be totally evident uh, in, in what way they're going to to show up like in what are they do they eventually just get off board with the utopic vision and therefore got to be nixed or I don't know how to categorize people into those classes, but I, I, I do want to double down on my drawing attention to the fact that the wedding on two occasions, like the wedding couldn't happen when the first group of people didn't bring to bear the correct, the correct decorum, let's say. And so the wedding was in total jeopardy. And so the wedding, I, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with Jed and that the wedding doesn't happen if the guests don't arrive in the correct manner. That's a, it's really interesting. I would, in, in listening in, I'm, I apologize. Like I, I make pour over coffee and it, it, it could sound like, you know, it can sound like a men's bathroom if you don't know what's going on in the background. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I'm like, Oh, I should probably mute here for a little bit. Uh, I think that that's a, is amazing insight. Um, Craig, I think that the, like, I, I tend to be, I ironically, maybe the, the older I get, the more utopian, I think that the kingdom actually drives us to be right. Whether that's in the parable of the talents, um, uh, in, in an ironic and inverted way in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, like there's, there's work to be done. There, there is, there is, our activity is a part of, uh, let's say the overall economics of the kingdom. It factors into that, right? Um, and what, what seems interesting to me in that first group, the first imperiling of the wedding, right? Is that they just seem to have no interest in that. And it reminds me of like the the seeds the seed that falls among the thorns, right? The worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches just chokes the life right out of right out of those those who are planted in that soil, 
right? And I think dispositionally, that that kind of is what this group, that first group of just, yeah, whatever, going from, yeah, whatever, to just straight up hostile, like, why are you talking about this wedding? I've got to worry about my 401k portfolio, you know, what's going on in the markets, uh, you know, I've got, you know, two kids in college, blah, 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 whatever the, the typical American version of that story might look like right? Where we just get so busy with the inertia of everyday life that we don't realize that growing right here in our midst is a kingdom that exists from eternity to eternity, right? And what does that work? What does that work call us to? Now, I do think that that kingdom exists independent of our action. It's good, guys. I really enjoyed it. Nice to meet you, Jed. Oh, nice to meet you. Take care, Mitch. Um, I think it, 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 it comes about independent of our action. It comes through realistically the saving work of Christ at the cross is the enzyme that creates that that impels the growth of the of the kingdom throughout history, both in what precedes it and what follows it. Um, but like we do have like this role that we have to play, and and in and in the sense, I think that like. You know, other parables might speak to a more active role that we have to play, but this one has to do with our receptivity to it, our ability to recognize the kingdom when it's in front of us and just to like say, yeah, there's a cool party coming. I want to be a part of that. Right. And this is a wedding feast. So we know what happens after a wedding feast, right? A wedding is consummated and there's a whole new life cycle that exert that, that you go into after that, right? The, the formation of a new family, right? And so I, I you know, whatever that looks like, um, I, I do think that the church, the people of God go into a co-creative capacity with God in the kingdom, um, actualizing its reality wherever they go. And so, um, and and I do think, you know, this this is where I could get in trouble, you know, uh, with people who are really into, you know, the postmodern hermeneutics of suspicion, right, is I do think this is a totalizing vision, right, which no, you know, which is very unpostmodern to say, but it is a universal and a totalizing vision, and everybody's included in their, you know, your relationship to that reality may be positive or negative, you know, as a universalist, I would never, I would say, like, it's never ultimately negative, but it can be experienced that way for quite some time, you know, as, as you're kind of, having to deal with the realities of judgment. Um, so I do think like there's a, there's a strong utopianism there. And there is a, there is a sense where we have like our response is integral to it coming about, right? Because in the second time it is in peril, but the King takes up a different tactic, just says, go out to the streets, anybody who, you know, get me warm bodies, basically is kind of what I'm hearing in the text is just give me warm bodies ready to go to the party. I don't care who they are, just bring them. Right. But everybody should have like a working understanding that if you're going to a wedding, like you go dress for the wedding, right. Give it the, give it the honor that, that is due to the wedding itself. Um, but it, it would appear to me in the, you know, among the multitudes that are invited and find themselves in the wedding, it's a vanishingly small number of people who are find themselves on the outside looking in after having accepted the invitation. There was one guy who wasn't dressed for the wedding. Right. And so I find that there, even with these, you know, stark threats of judgment, you still see like a, a far more radiant and hopeful picture by the time, you know, we had to postpone the, postpone the initial party until we could get more people in. And, and now we've got, we've got the ones that are, you know, we're ready to have the party and it gets going. Um, and, and so I, I think where, like for me, where I've been, um, you know, and this is, this comes as a guy who likes reading pretty heavy theology and biblical studies. I, the, the good thing with my training is like, I've been able to learn how to read those texts. I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a scholar in any way though, but I'm able to read um, some fairly high level stuff and, and engage it thoughtfully, you know, which is cool. Um, but what I get frustrated with is 
that a lot of times what ends up happening, and maybe this this feeds into some of just my my background of also having to work in a professional world where if you have great ideas, that's wonderful. But if you can't practically implement them, they're useless, you know, is like, okay, so we can sit here and talk about, you know, the finer points of theology, what good, what constitutes good theology, what constitutes bad theology, who's a good Christian, who's a bad Christian, you know, what, who's good and who's bad in the world and all that kind of stuff. And it just, it turns into like this, this sec, this, this like collective navel gazing um, that leads into like no actual, no real action, no meaningful action in the world. And I do believe that that's the field of action to which we're called. And, um, you know, while I'm not smart enough to know what that looks like for everybody, I, I know that for myself, it's it it has to look like something that's more radically plugged in and engaged than I tend to be a lot of times. And so I get a little bit exasperated even with myself. It's like, okay, you know, I believe that this kingdom is coming. I believe that there's this reality is the primary reality but how does that filter into like what I actually do and how do I participate in that reality in a meaningful way that, you know, insofar as I'm able drives meaningful change in the world that I've been lived, that I, that I live in. And, um, and so there's like that kind of dissatisfaction that I, and maybe it's not something that everybody deals with, but I just find myself, you know, over the last few years and probably the more, the more the more I've read in in great scholarship and great theology is like the the deepening dissatisfaction of like, oh wow, these truths are really, truly lofty and they're wonderful and they're beautiful. But how does that like how does that beauty then translate itself into the way we actually live? And um and so I I see like a lot of times even in thinking and talking about some of these things, like we it's easier to talk about than it is to go out and do. And so what we end up doing is like, um, you know, like the field of action is the world and that's where we're called to be. And I find that we're kind of like sports show commentators talking about what's happening on the field of action and still not actually doing it. <laughs> you know, So I don't know. I mean, that's where a little bit of the, the dissatisfaction comes in, but I, I think it's like, okay, like with some of the concepts, like I would point back to Berdyaev and like, he makes a very strong case for why we need to look at the, at least creating the conditions where the kingdom can flourish and grow is a part of the creative vocation of God's people. And that can actually be very simple. It doesn't necessarily mean like, hey, you know, your, you know, your housewife in Latvia or um, a, a young father in in Calcutta has to instigate structural change to be somebody who is involved and engaged in the kingdom work. That's not the, that's not the case. Like something as simple as a cup of cold water for a thirsty child is advancing the interests of the kingdom. Right. So it's, it can, it can take place in very concrete and ordinary acts of goodness um, just as much as it can, you know, but I think also like um, in the field of collective action, like, we actually have the ability to bring about um, change for the better. So like, for example, like, I think that's something where even though you can look back into the sixties and say, like, um, there may have been things that we could have done better, like with under leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. was very much engaged in, I think, advancing the interests of the kingdom simply in, in making improvements in, in the world we live in today by standing for a more just and equitable society. Now, I think that that that, that can also take the shape of the kingdom work, just like the simple ordinary stuff as well. So I think it can encompass the range of like the really revolutionary and this, the, the ordinary and the common. But I do think we have to take that, take that calling seriously. I liked everything you just said. <laughs> Me too. Oh. Jason, Jason, how much time do you have? Um, I can probably stick around. I was going to leave at four, but I can probably stick around a few more minutes. So, because it's almost four anyway. This well, is interesting. What came to my mind too, because we were talking about uh, just, um, I'd like to hear what you, 
what you were getting ready to say too, but like, cause I was thinking like when you talk about in, actually engaging in it in your everyday life. And I was just like, man, how do you, how do I implicate any sort of like kingdom ideas when I'm stuck in traffic? I'm just like, like, cause at that moment, you know, it's just times, times when road rage, cause I'm thinking all the times, like just you immediately fall out of any sort of, uh, nobody's my neighbor nobody's my brother when i'm mad in traffic or something it's like put the windows up everybody's out and it's like i don't i don't know that's just a very immediate practical like uh thing that came to my head i was like those are the times i think when road rage comes in where everybody's everybody's my enemy <laughs> or something i don't know you know i i could tell you like, i deal with that too <laughs> I, and i um so i i i back and forth between Northern California and Southern California because my family's uh, down there and I'm up here. So I'm down there, you know, uh, one or two times a month, typically. Uh, so I'm driving, you know, that's a, it's about a seven hour drive and most of it's on interstate five is mostly two lane or four, you know, two lanes going North, two lanes going South. And uh, it, 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 it is so easy for me to lose my cool and just get completely out of my mind you know what I mean? And so I've had to, you know, since I've been making that drive regularly now for the last several months, um, is actually use that as a spiritual discipline, right? Is like, I have a fundamental responsibility to the drivers around me to make sure that I'm doing what I can to get them to their destination safe. So I'm not going to cut somebody off on purpose or, you know, drive in an erratic way or, you know, uh, drink behind the wheel or whatever it is. Like I have a, I have some ethical obligations as a driver, but I also have some obligations internally. Like when somebody drives like an idiot, which is guaranteed on a seven hour drive, I'm going to run into my fair share, right? You just, you can't avoid them. And usually they're not being idiots on purpose. It's like their kids yelling at them in the back of the car or their phone's ringing or whatever the reason is, right? Um, is just to let that go and understand. It's like, I have my moments as a driver too, right? Where I'm less than attentive mm -hmm. and like try to like reduce the rage and just the expletives that come out of my mouth <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. and, uh, and, and just sit there and be like, well, you know, if somebody cuts me off is like ease off the gas and just say a little blessing of like, I hope you do get where you're going safely. You know, yeah. and like, Lord, you might need to intervene with this one, you know, depending on how erratic their driving is, but I'll see it all the time. So I'm, I'm in that situation, right. Where it's mm -hmm. like, oh. so there are times where I'll get to like, I'll get, you know, I'm two to two hours into the drive, five hours left. And it's like, okay, I got to reframe my expectations here. Cause there's a lot of idiots on the road today. <laughs> um, you know, is, yeah. you know, turn it into an internal challenge of like, can I, you know, from here, can I, you know, at least, in this little box, this little rolling box that is my vehicle, can it, you know, be a vehicle of of goodness and holiness <laughs> versus like resentment and anger and rage and all those kinds of things. So yeah, yeah, yeah. At least in some small way, like then I, I'm I'm you know contributing to the healthy traffic flow. <laughs> yeah. Well, Craig, what were you gonna were you gonna say something before when you asked uh, when I had to leave? Or? No, I'm just aware of I, I'm just aware of your deadlines. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. I mean, you guys are welcome if you wanted to start another well, Zoom call or something. I think, I, I think it's you were the one who sent the invite. Yeah, like, yeah. It was, it was by the way, Craig. It was awesome getting a chance to hear from you. Very insightful. I, I would love to mm -hmm. have more conversations with you guys in the future. You know, we can Likewise. make up on some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but I do, I, I just, what I would say is like, I think that like if, like a, the bigger high level takeaway that I get from this text is like, you know, the, the reality, the impending reality of the kingdom should be felt by every Christian in every time, right? Now I can't, I can say, yeah, I think that the kingdom coming is quite near, right? And I think that's a healthy stance that every Christian actually should take. As opposed to thinking like, well, it hasn't happened yet, so I don't need to worry about it, kind of thing. Yeah. It, well, like, how do we how do we actively engage ourselves, and like, what does that? How do we actively engage ourselves as those who have responded according to who have responded to the invitation, right? 
and we know the party's coming. Like, what does that mean for how we organize action in the present, whether that's on a personal or on a corporate kind of level? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that the statement of Christ where it says that he says the kingdom of heaven is within you. Like, I think it's, I mean, I think it's within you and without outside of you as well. And so I think, and I think it's now and it's coming. And so, uh, cause he's the one who is and is to come. So it's like it, but I think if you just read this uh, parable and s- s- uh, flip it, uh, strictly internally, it, it reads, um, in a, in a whole new way, a very immediate way. Like you're talking about, like the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Cause it's within you. It's like, it's always happening. It's always right here right now. Um, but it does have a es- eschatological, I can't say that word, uh, a- application as well, um, as well as immediate. Yeah. Well, I think it's just like Jesus has this great way. Like, uh, you, like one of the things I really like is just his, um, his ability in such a short space to tell such transformational stories. <laughs> right yeah like reduce things very quickly like i mean this is you know this is a paragraph and you could write books you could write a a whole novel on this particular story arc and it's just it's so condensed it's so punchy and it like it it calls into question some very fundamental things in in such a quick way and and i think like the the net effect of jesus stories is like they shake us out of our complacency Right. And I just, I find that complacency in my, I find myself battling that complacency, uh, but also wanting to be among those who respond according to the invitation and, and begin to contemplate what that invitation means for how, you know, how I organize my life here and now. So. Well, I probably, that's good. I probably do got to get off here though, but I mean, you guys, if you want, I can send this cop clip to you, Jed. If you guys wanted to continue or something, you could tack this on the front of it, but that's totally up to you guys. But I do think it would be cool to uh to have you and Craig together again at some point because Jed's um That's good. Me and Craig sometimes try to dig into talk about touch on like alchemy and things like that a little bit too. And I know you're you're into the you've ex- I've had the experience with the chakras and thing like that. And so I think there might be some similarities and parallels those types of things yeah i was thinking i I was thinking even next week um i i wanted to spend some time with you jason and talking about talking through some of what that is what it isn't how i do that kind of stuff so uh, craig you i would you know i'm out here on the west coast i don't know where you're located but um you know usually afternoons evenings are are open for me so same here perfect okay well jason set up a play date for us all right all right we'll work on that well, thanks, guys. Right. Sorry I got to run. So, but this no has been problem. a lot of fun. So, have a good day. All right. See you, All right. you too. See you guys.